Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. My favorite story was we had a 16-year-old girl. She attends the same, actually, uh, school as my son. Very energetic, outgoing girl. We did the course for her and a number of classes for her. And she went to her dad and she said, instead of my birthday present, Dad, can you put the money in an index fund for me? And he was shocked. Like for her, her birthday, she'd spend all year thinking about which bag she wanted, a vacation, a piece of uh, you know technology. But he's like, no, no, put it in the thing. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, I've been telling her the importance of saving. And telling somebody it's important to save does not that effective. Telling them that money they spent could be worth 40 times that amount in 20 years. And they could be super rich. And maybe they don't need it that badly. It changes the way they think about it. All of a sudden, you know, I don't really need this. It attaches a different cost to that decision-making process for these kids. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. When I look back to survey the wreckage of my own financial experiences, I wonder how I might have benefited from basic financial literacy in school. Today I'm speaking with someone who's taking the Wall Street bull by the educational horns to help students understand some key concepts of finance and investing. Hello, Raji. Hi, Phil. How are you? So glad to be on. Raji Kabaz began his career in investment and merchant banking. He has an honours BA in economics from the University of California and an MBA from Harvard Business School. His career has spanned roles as a CEO, CIO and portfolio manager at several hedge fund companies. And he's now the founder of Learn Wall Street, an after-school education program aimed at students from grades 7 to 12. So let's start by talking about um, your background. What led you to be interested in finances and investments when you were a young chap? Um, that's a great question. It was an unusual path for me. I, I come from a family of doctors and engineers, and going into finance was a bit of a step down in their view. I uh, made the mistake of interning the uh, San Francisco Stock Exchange when I was uh, undergraduate at Berkeley and was just hooked on it completely. What was it? It was, I, I guess it, was, it felt exciting, you know, and just watching what was going on. Was, was that in the old days of open outcry? That would, uh, yeah, it was uh, people in the pit coming, hand signals, there were quotrons, so there weren't a whole lot of the, there were no Bloombergs, you had to write tickets down feverishly to make sure you didn't mess up trades. I just never experienced anything like it. It was a combination of math and science and psychology and, you know, it was terribly fascinating and a different exposure to anything I'd seen before. So, yeah, I became the black sheep. <laughs> Let's go to Learn Wall Street, and you've been sending over some fantastic information about it and the curriculum that you're offering to students. What inspired you to start it? Um, I'll tell you, it, it, it was an evolutionary process. My son had gone interested in finance. A couple of years ago, we were traveling to Italy, uh, we're in Sicily, and um, Ferrari, who was very smart, rented a demonstration booth where you could rent the car for an hour. And I, I thought, wow, what a great dad. I'll rent the Ferrari for an hour. 
A day later, my son came to me and and suggested we rent, uh, buy two Airbnbs and rent them so we could always have a Ferrari. And it evolved his interest in money. And I was surprised at his age. He's my first and only born, the interest level. So I thought it'd be nice to come up with a little course for him. And that's how it started. And then it kind of spread to other classmates of his. We started doing smaller classes. And then the curriculum, which you've seen, evolved to a whole different level. And we thought, wow, you know, it's, it's such a great idea. We want to roll it out to a broader audience. And that's kind of where we are. We've gone from kind of a, a personal project for my son to smaller classes with our community to now, you know, rolling out more broad-based across New York City. And it's pretty amazing, isn't it, when you consider the, how crowded the curriculum is for young people in school. Um, is it difficult to kind of shoehorn this in? I, I, you know, that's such a great question. Um, you know, because I think broadly based people agree of the value of teaching money and finance and savings to kids. Nobody says, oh, that's a bad idea. Um, and yet it's woefully undertaught. Um, and it's such an interesting reason. And, and, you know, we spent a number of, uh, you know, probably the last two years looking at it. And I think it comes down to just, there's sort of institutional limits in the schools. And if you think about it, Traditionally, K through 12 is very focused on subjects like math, science, history, languages. And while finance and accounting is essential, it hasn't been deemed important enough for them to allocate resources to it. Separately, I think, you know, it's becoming less so these days, but the curriculums are heavily designed towards subjects covered in standardized testing, you know, and in different school programs. So the, what are considered the traditional core uh, curriculum topics, like, again, math, science, English. And then finally, when you think about investing in finance, it's it's unusual. It's not you can't go to school to get teaching credentials for it. If you really want to teach it, you have to have been on Wall Street. You have to have been in the Coliseum. You have to have seen battle, and otherwise, it's just sort of an exposure course. So there's a challenge of getting people to teach it later in their careers because it's not something where you can go get your master's in math or languages and then become a teacher. You need to have that wisdom component, and I I think. For the traditional schools, that's hard to fill that role. And then finally, I would say um, sometimes people mistakenly think of this education as very Wall Street geared. I think you'd agree, you know, in math and science, one plus one is always two. We teach our kids that. We fly spaceships around the solar system based on that logic. You know, business and investing is a very different way of looking at things. One plus one isn't always two. It depends on conditions, on outcomes. It's more probabilities and statistics. And in that way, it's more applicable in not just financial decisions, but do you think about life decisions? You know, should I fly here or should I go there? What's the danger? More enjoyment. So it's a different intellectual framework for kids to be exposed to. And, you know, as a father, you see the benefits of exposing your children to different intellectual frameworks. You know, studying music helps math. You know, studying math helps art. And, you know, there's all these cross disciplines that are synergistic. So Learn Wall Street is not specifically aimed at people who want a career in Wall Street then. It's um, for all kinds of kids. Who else can benefit from this? You know, it's interesting. We've received a lot of interest from adults, people kind of afraid to ask or successful professionals in careers. Um, you know, when we reach out to parents um, of students, a lot of their parents in New York are professors and there's been interest there. People want to understand money. They want to understand investing. And if you don't work, you know, people on Wall Street take all these concepts and knowledge for granted. But to the outside world, it's this dark, insurmountable mountain. 
And it's very daunting and, and people are very intimidated by the concepts of money and investing. It is incredible how intimidating it is for most people. And um, I think sometimes Wall Street and the whole finance industry does try and make it that way so that they feel like they're, you know, a special cult that only they can deal in these issues. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, I think to some extent, um, it's also a, a tough place. You know, it, it's not a place that is geared or designed to be kind of, you know, user friendly. <laughs> so if even if students aren't interested in Wall Street, um, basic financial literacy and just things like compounding, for example, are just, I mean, they're concepts that anyone can benefit from, aren't they? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, it, investing in co- and, you know, things like compounding, it's one of the few topics that's worth more the younger you learn it. You know, if you're 60 and you learn about compounding and being smart with your money and index funds and whatever, diversified portfolios, you know, your time frame to invest is a lot shorter than if you're a 12-year-old. I mean, the math is really impressive, right? I kind of measure, the, you know, we do these smaller lessons, um, as well as the big lessons. And it's, you know, I judge the effectiveness at the classes by a scale that measures wide eyes and sort of drop jaws, you know, and where we get those sort of reactions. And we kind of talk to kids about the power of compounding. It blows them away. I mean, you know, these are teenagers. In 40 years, they'll be mid-50s based on life expectancy, you know, halfway through their lives. And you tell them $1,000 invested 15% for 40 years is $267,000. And you get a lot of wide eyes and drop jaws. You say, oh, wait, if you put a thousand in every year, now you're looking at two million, you know? And I think when they understand, you know, the knowledge is so powerful and it's so obvious and it's so logical and there's a increased value in teaching it early that it does, it's not, it's not a hard sell and it has an impact on them immediately. And we see that from a behavioral perspective. So let's talk about some of the key concepts running through the curriculum then. So the time value of money, that's um, one of the first things that you cover, isn't it? And um, what does a pair of Nike shoes really cost you? The thing is, you know, telling teenagers, hey, you made 4,000% on your money doesn't have the impact it would have on people on Wall Street, right? Oh, you generated 24% annual returns for 12 years with a you know, sharp ratio of X and a Sortina ratio of Y and it doesn't have the same theatrical impact on them. So we try to not just show them the numbers for what the money could be, but to actually put it in, in you know, perspective, real world, you're buying a pair of Nike shoes. You know, that's $200. You know, at 10%, you know, that's an average blue chip fund over the last 10, 20 years. That's $9,000 in 40 years. And that, you know, we hope starts to get them to think differently about money and about consumption. And so the time value of money to some extent is trying to connect the the cost to making decisions about consumption early and to start thinking about savings uh, differently. And um, you also speak in this section about hyperinflation and the role of hyperinflation. You give the example of Zimbabwe. Tell us about that. We wanted to teach the kids in each lesson a major concept and what, what, what is important. And, and the semester weaves together. So it's a building block, right? You can't really dive into price earnings ratios until you understand the income statement. There's no point talking about valuation and discounting if you don't understand time value of money. So you're kind of weaving this mosaic of knowledge. And at the end, it's it's a full tapestry to understand how to invest. So the time value of money was understanding the importance of inflation, that it's, it just sitting in cash is an investment decision. And historically, given the you know, way fiat currencies have depreciated, not a particularly smart one. 
So Zimbabwe was to show them an extreme case because kids are interesting. You know, you want to engage their interests and they always want to know extremes. If you tell my son that's a fast car, he'll want to know what's the fastest car. If you, this is the tallest, tall building, what's the tallest building? Oh, inflation, what's the worst inflation? And it's such a great question on their part, right? Because we always take for granted stable inflation regimes. And, and you look back at the last year at, at what we've seen with transient inflation, not so transient inflation, or transitory, sorry. So, you know, this was to, to frame what, you know, inflation seems like a boring thing. We In the first part of the lesson, we showed 2 3% can really wipe out the purchasing power of your money over a long period of time. In Zabwe, you can do it overnight. And that if you're investing, you can't just be focused on stocks. You have to appreciate the environment you're investing in, appreciate the country you're investing in, appreciate the monetary policy of the country you're investing in, because things can get very unstable and normal rules of finance don't work during those periods. And um, we used to talk about wheelbarrows of money, and I had to put pictures in because nobody believed me. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There are some people who are so gung-ho about investing, they just want to go and risk everything in the market. But then on the other side, you have people who are so conservative, they just want to leave their money in cash. And that is a real danger as well, just putting your money and just leaving it in cash because of this inflationary pressure. People make decisions without knowing they're making decisions with money. It's, such, it's, it's worth so much more now than it would be later, trying to understand the concept. So you know, the first step to understanding why you have to invest is if you're in cash, you're, you are investing, and negatively, historically. You know, we show them interesting exhibits, like what a car costs in the 30s, you know, you know what you know, Harvard tuition was $800 or $400 a year in 1930. That has an impact on them because they, they kind of see what happens to money. If you had set aside $4,000 to buy a house in the 1930s, put that in cash instead of the house, and 40 years later, you're going to retire and use that money for a house, you know, in New York, it buys you one month's rent in a one-bedroom apartment, right? It has an impact on them. But the challenge for the kids is you don't want to give them just exposure. You want to give them wisdom, right? Like a lot of programs are heavy on the knowledge part theory. What is a PE? What is a stock? And we want to teach that together with, here's a life lesson. Here's a case study. Why get bloodied in battle right away like we all had to do when you can learn from other people's failures and successes? They say the Wall, Wall Street is the Colosseum. You know, gladiators practice with wooden swords before they go fight. And these case studies are, are, are in a way practice for them. Understand in real terms what this means. And I think when they relate to that, it stays with them longer and it makes them want to take the other lessons. Every lesson, if you think about it, leads to the next lesson, which starts all together, solves pieces of the question of how to be a smart steward of your own capital. Imagine we're trying to teach a lesson on tail risk and catastrophic risk. That's sort of a part of the risk-reward le lesson. So in the risk-reward lesson, we talk about what risk, risk and reward, expected payoff. We give stock market examples uh, from a sector asset class perspective on what were good risk-reward investments, like SPACs in 2021, not so good. Uh, what were 
good risk reward, maybe energy in 2020 at the bottom of COVID, that kind of stuff. But we want to talk about catastrophic risk. We wanted to deal, show them in a way they could understand. So here's the way you teach catastrophic risk with M&Ms. Imagine there's three M&Ms. One is green, one is blue, and one is red. If you pick a green M&M, something really good happens to you. If you pick a blue M&M, nothing happens to you. Not good nor bad. If you pick a red M&M, something really bad happens to you. Then in class, we have a jar with different proportions of M&Ms. In the first case, two big jars of blue and green M&Ms and a tiny jar of red M&Ms. The second case, a giant jar of red M&Ms and very small jars of blue and green m And they get to decide, would you pick now, would you not pick now? Obviously, blindfolded, but they get a sense of, okay, if there's proportionally more red M&Ms, that's not good. And if there's not that many, that's less risk. And that's kind of a way to get them to think about that. Making this podcast, something's really become clear to me that the idea of risk in the finance industry is different to what a normal person's idea of risk is. A normal person's idea of risk is they don't want to lose all their money. But um, in finance, it's more related to volatility. Is that the case? There's a fair bit of the curriculum where we highlight the fact that markets crash. You know, for people who've never been in the stock market, the perception of stocks just move in a straight line or they move up every year. And we look at case studies where some of the best performing stocks didn't do anything for uh, long periods of time or, or didn't perform, um, perform poorly over substantial periods of time. You know, it's absolutely true. We also take it for granted people's level of comfort with things like volatility. The first time you experience volatility, it's scary. And, you know, while investing is very unique, you get a score that's objectively measured to the penny. You know, you can look intraday and see how you're doing. It takes practice to be able to look at a screen and see you're down all this red and not have it affect you. And I think when people come into the market, they're, they're the most vulnerable to that kind of uh, emotional reaction, which gets in the way of what you're, what you're right, being rational and smart about investing. I think when they understand it's not that uh, unusual, you can point out when every, once every seven years, you get a correction. Once every X years, you get this much of a correction. The normal return to break even in the market is typically this period after it. And then you see in the chart, okay, this is normal. You know, you, you try and highlight lessons, like I said, like the gladiators with the wooden swords. Understand you have volatility. We go through the major last three crashes, internet bubble in 2000, the mortgage crisis in 08, 09, uh, COVID 2020. And you can see each time situations where the headlines where the world is ending and what happens. And it I, I hopefully it gives them a frame of mind to understand that volatility and flat periods are very normal. Um, and it's just the best thing is to ignore it. We also highlight it's not necessarily a bad thing. To, uh, we use an example. Let's say you buy a house and the next day somebody comes in and offers you 50% less. Would you panic? No, you don't have to sell the house. Two years, if somebody comes in and offers you four times your house, you can take it. And we try and get them to understand with stocks, as long as they're not levered and we deal with margin, the evils of margin, they shouldn't care where the stock is tomorrow or the next day. They should care where it is in... 20 years or 30 years when they retire. And, you know, we use examples of stocks like, you know, it's interesting. The second best performing stock, I believe, in the S&P 500 in the last 20 years was United Healthcare Group. Apple was first. You would have thought more tech, but United Healthcare Group. If you don't United Healthcare Group over the last 10 years, in every single year, you would have suffered a major drawdown. It's just the nature of the business. And I, I think by highlighting how normal it is and how frequent it happens, it, it helps them get from a place of pure fear on their way towards a place where not so much fear. 
Well, I guess this is a great jumping off point to talk about the madness of crowds. <laughs> what do you teach about the madness of crowds? Um, you know, you've read the book, uh, Popular Delusions and Madness of Crowds. Everybody who's ever studied Ponzi's, it's a classic. I thought it's a great time to cover that. You know, a lot of courses, again, overly focused on what's a PE, what's an income state. Let's talk about what's going on. You know, these kids today, because they're on social media, are exposed to so much snake oil salesman nonsense. It's unbelievable. Crypto, this, NFT, that, buy a dancing ballerina gorilla for this. Uh, and then the flashes of wealth, right? It's people with cars and money. They have exposure to this stuff in a way they wouldn't have had. You know, you would never have thought your kids would be, you know, getting the Nigerian prince help me phone call at seven, or the internet version of it, right? But that's what happens. When they're on the internet, when they're on social media, they're exposed to money and they're exposed to cons. And we hadn't seen it done by any other class. We devoted a whole lesson on it. Um, behavioral psychology, Ponzi schemes, Madoff, what is a Ponzi scheme? Asset bubbles, you know, what creates them? What do they look like? We went th go through historical stuff. Some historical, like tulip mania, that's a famous one. Um, we talk about the internet bubbles. But then we get, you know, more like mem stocks and things, examples. Um, you know, favorite one we use is Hertz. They went bankrupt and then people started trading the stock. You know, you get these crazy outcomes and... I think it's important now because they are much more exposed to financial fraud and shenanigans than we in our generation ever was through social media. And it's also the desire to get rich quick. I mean, it's such a temptation, isn't it? They say the effect on young girls on social media is they want to lose weight and the unrealistic perceptions of their body. Well, social media also gives people unrealistic perceptions of how easy wealth is to create and how, you know, what's the smart way of creating money? You know, long term, you know, index, tax efficient. You know, you don't need to be a gunslinger with all your money, but they're on there and their friends are making, you know, all this money in 30 seconds and they don't have the ability to process that and know how much nonsense and danger that is. And we devote a whole class to that. And I think it's also interesting because it, it highlights the importance that finance and business has a very strong psychology component that you don't see in things like math and physics and astronomy. And it's, it's really good to underline the point that a return of, say, 12% per annum for 20, 30, 40 years is actually fantastic because- Unbelievable. It is. It's unbelievable if you can get that. You know, it's a superpower because of that. You don't need to do, you know, 25%. They, 50 years, they're 50. They can invest for 70, 80 years. And it's unbelievable what compounding looks like. I mean, I wish I, I would have paid millions if somebody told me this when I was seven, eight years old. All that lingo gone into an S&P index fund. <laughs> that's right um but people aren't exposed who aren't exposed to it they hear 12 percent and they go oh that's not very much is it they just don't have that understanding well you know it's one of the challenges of compounding if you look at the mathematical graph of compounding it doesn't look like it's doing anything for a long time it gets bigger and, it, and at, at the rate at which it gets bigger it gets bigger because your your capital your, your profits are reinvested and then those profits are reinvested so there's that dynamic and then there's the other challenges, which is panic emotions. You know, it's easy to get shaken out and knowledge. I, I, I think, you know, people tell somebody like inflation, I tell people inflation two, 3%, they're like, what do I care? Well, 20 years, half your money's gone. I mean, my, my wife has friends who had money 40 years ago and they don't trust the market or banks and they put it in a safety deposit box. And it was a lot of money back then. And now it's not a lot of money. And it's, it's kind of sad. And, and how have they reacted to that when they realized what, what had gone on? Well, until they meet me, they don't know they did anything wrong. <laughs> I mean, nobody's telling them. You know, that's the shock. I, I tell you, with adults, it's funny. With kids, the, the thing is, oh, my God, I want to change what I'm doing. 
when I show this stuff or we do like discussion groups with adults, the reaction is very different. The reaction is, oh my God, I was so stupid when I was 20. Oh my God, I can't believe I spent this money on this coat. Oh my God, if I just took one less trip or I didn't go to this restaurant so much or, oh, I spent 10000 going out to a restaurant. If I put that, you know, it's this regret. It's kind of a different reaction, but it's, it's, it's equally impactful. And I, I assume this is the reason why the mafia doesn't like inflation. Yeah, we use a great example because um, if you're a gangster, you, you can't deposit money in the bank. They want to know where the money came from. And you're dealing with large amounts of money. So there's always a joke. You know, gangsters bury the money in the backyard. And we tell the students, that'll protect your money. People might not find it, but it doesn't protect the purchasing power of the money. And here's the hardest concept that we try and teach with that example. A dollar today is not worth a dollar tomorrow, even though it's still worth a dollar. Now, you usually lose 75% of the class right there. But that's a good segue into understanding it, right? To just start thinking about things differently. What is a dollar? What is money? Money ultimately is to purchase something. You know, it's a store of value or a medium of exchange. And, you know, historically dollars, you know, fail at that miserably. Yeah, that's right. I think Gary um, always points out that uh, the US dollar's lost 98% of its value, something like that, since inception. Yeah, it's since 1913, 97%. And I think every fiat currency, the numbers are so bad, it's amazing anybody accepts them anymore, right? I mean, but listen, they don't get that. So like they, and most people have a lot of money in cash somewhere. You know, sitting in a checking account or savings account making 0.5%. Maybe now they're starting to move it. It turned out 5% was the level you needed to spook people out of low income, low yield uh, accounts. But people are scared. They don't like, we take it for granted. Okay, you don't like the stocks, buy a bond, buy a money market. It's, even for them, that is, oh my God, arcane world of Wall Street. And I don't know what's going on. Okay, better not to get hurt. It's amazing what an obstacle the lack of knowledge is here. And that's why I think these kind of programs have so much impact because there's this curiosity, there's this need, there's more value to knowing this than anything else. And once you break that ice wall, it's just a rush towards this because they, you know, and it's much simpler than they think. I tell people you don't need linear algebra and differential calculus for this. You need plus minus multiplication, division, throw in the plus uh, equal sign. You know, you've got 60, 70% of it. I mean, we're not doing option theory. It's basic math, basic multiplication, and it's not that daunting. And I think it helps to have a guide. If you think of what we're doing, we're shepherding them through this 14 weeks and explaining how to get to it. So it's meant to be with the case studies a much more immersive experience than kind of an exposure program. No, it's interesting. I was, I was just coming to mind because another guest that I've had on a couple of times, he's a, an ex-dancer and he's running workshops for creative people in finance as well in New York City. Oh, very nice. And um, it's amazing because, you know, these are people who are just not interested in money in the slightest. <laughs> but as soon as the the blinds fall away from their, their eyes, they just get it and they just realize what they can do, especially in a gig economy like that, where they've got to go from um, feast to famine <laughs> very quickly. Decisions these kids make now gives them opportunities and optionality in their 40s and 50s to do anything, to be artists, to be philanthropists, to be entrepreneurs, to go into government. I mean, it's, you know, and it's it's not a lot of work, right? It's behavioral. It's put a little bit of money in, figure out how you want to be invested, understand what's smart, avoid all the snake oil salesmen, and then don't think about it except for once a year when you put more in. When you wake up in 50 years, you'll thank me and, you know, it's, the knowledge is self-affirming. Once you know what the numbers are and that they're achievable, and then you see what the results are, that's the astonishment inflection point, right? 
And if you wait long enough, like you said, is the outcomes are pretty astounding. So tell us about some individual students and um, when you've seen them and how um, the lights have switched on for them. My favorite story was we had a 16-year-old girl. She attends the same, actually, uh, school as my son. Very energetic, outgoing girl. We did the course for her and a number of classes for her. And she went to her dad and she said, instead of my birthday present, dad, can you put the money in an index fund for me? And he was shocked. Like for her, her birthday, she'd spend all year thinking about which bag she wanted, a vacation, a piece of uh, you know technology. But he's like, no, no, put it in the thing. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, I've been telling her the importance of saving and telling somebody it's important to save does not that effect. If telling them that money they spent could be worth 40 times that amount in 20 years and they could be super rich and maybe they don't need it that badly. It changes the way they think about it. All of a sudden, you know, I don't really need this. It attaches a different cost to that decision-making process for these kids. So with this young young woman, it was really interesting to see because she wasn't like a finance wonk. She wasn't a high school kid in the you know, high school business school club. She had no interest in business or markets or any of that stuff. But the knowledge was impactful enough to have a, a, a change in behavior, right? I mean, that's the goal. I mean, this is a goal-oriented program. We want the kids at the end of one semester to be smart about their money. It's not meant to be a, uh, you know, okay, now you know what Wall Street means. It's how to invest. Yeah, I, I um, for a couple of Christmases now, I've been giving ETFs to my younger relatives. Uh, there's a service where you can um, just buy an ETF, or you can even buy them shares in Ferrari, for best example. Gift ever. Yeah, yeah, best <laughs> gift ever. And you give it to them, and it's like this, you know, uh, here's Uncle Phil again. He's going to explain ETFs to us all. <laughs> I should do an exhibit like that. Hey, when your uncle gives you a $100 gift certificate, it's not really a $100 gift. It's it's really $5,000. You just got to wait for it. Yeah, yeah. But stuff like that, they get it. They relate to that, and they remember it. And I think a lot of people try and figure out clever ways to teach present value formula, right? Okay, I'll simplify it, break it down. And that has value. But there's a concept behind present value. And I think the mistake people make is twofold. They think if I can't teach them the full formula, I shouldn't teach them. There's no value in the conceptual understanding of the principle behind the formula. That's completely wrong. And two, people are not ambitious enough in terms of what these kids can learn. You know, as a father in New York, my son is active in these programs. He does coding, he does math, karate, you know, baseball. A lot of the programs are, are not that ambitious in terms of how they teach the kids, right? It's a very diluted version. And I think what we've learned is they can handle a lot more learning than people think they can. And we're going to try and push them to the limits. And, you know, we don't expect them to get 100% of it. But if they get 70 or 80% of this, it's life-changing. It will be for them. I was just talking to another guest this week, and he was talking about the Pygmalion effect, where um, if you expect more from someone, that um, you will get more back from them. Yeah. And if you don't raise those expectations, there's nothing to reach for. And um, people do rise to the challenge. I play tennis, play with a better tennis player, you play better. Ski with a better skier, you ski better. You know, you put your students in better schools, they learn better. These kids can learn. You know, my son is in a, a, a language immersion program, Spanish immersion, since kinder, uh, since nursery school. You think, okay, I mean, how effective can it be? I don't speak Spanish. So one day he just got up and started speaking Spanish with some Spanish friends, and I was stunned. And they, you know, these kids, his, his age, that age, and even older, they, their capacity to learn is really quite astonishing. And we shortchange them by, I think, simplifying things sometimes too much and constraining their exposure. But I understand why the schools can't really address this. That, that's the whole role for people like us. You know, the, the, 
the you need people with senior experience to make this the most effective. It's not something that somebody out of grad school can do because they've got no trading experience. And it needs to be done in a way that convinces two decision agents. I have a friend who runs a gymnastics school in New York, one wonderful school, but the children are young and the parents are choosing which programs they think will help in the development of their children, whether physically or cognitively. When they get to the teenage level, they decide as well as their parents whether they want to opt into something. So, you know, that's the challenge. The, you know, everyone agrees this is important knowledge. Everybody agrees it's not taught. Everybody agrees it's worth more knowing young. The math of that logic is, is, is hard to fight. The challenge is how do you create content that takes subjects that aren't necessarily eye-grabbing and well-suited to storytelling um, to engage them. And that was, that was what our focus was on, was you know, the major concepts are out there. We're not reinventing the wheel. We don't have a different view of time value of money. We've tried to be very effective in how we teach it to them, so it stays with them. And um, so you're rolling this out across New York City at the moment? Is it just yeah. New York City? We're starting with our first full semester of September on a limited basis, and then we'll keep rolling it out. Yeah, we've got uh, the, the semester starting September 19th is our first semester. It's a 14-week, once-a-week program, one hour a week. And, and what's the interaction like with schools? We are talking to a number of schools now. We have approached parents directly through the networks. I've been in New York 25 years with friends at different schools. We sent emails, and that produced a pretty strong response. Actually, we sold out our first class in like half a day. So now we're expanding the classes to offer more. It's a challenge, you know, reaching out to the schools. The schools, you know, again, it's, it's there's an institutional mentality here. Um, with the schools, it's a process. When you go directly to the parents, they make a decision. The school has to go through a vetting process. Is the right program? Are these the right people? What's their background? You know, background searches. Are they, you know, good people? Are there anything to worry about? Obviously, they have to protect the children and they have to protect the integrity of their program and their reputation. It's a more evolved process. The other big opportunity we think there might be is in the corporate market. Companies want to sponsor these programs for their clients, for their employees, their employees' families. You know, they give yoga classes. Google gives you free meditation and app. You know, it's it's part of the culture to do this through HR now. Um, and we've been talking to companies, and you know, that's actually been a surprisingly positive interaction. I think for us, for the next year, we we want to run this through larger classes. We've been doing classes for the past year, probably four or five a week, but the class sizes are two to five students, and we've done one adult class, uh, which actually surprised me. We talked about that, but yeah, there's interest. And what we've learned is that evolves, the, the curriculums go through a huge amount of editing and evolution from that. Like I said, you know, where are the engagement points? What stuck? What didn't work? You know, where were the wide eyes, the dropped jaws? That's our metric. Um, and I think now with the bigger class interactions, it'll develop further. And then I think we'll have content, you know, that we can think about how to best distribute. I mean, obviously, the more people we can reach, the more positive impact we have. And that, that would be awesome. And like you referred to before, it's uh, this is something that's perfect for adults as well. I mean, I looked at the curriculum and go, <laughs> you know, this is yeah. there is nothing there that uh, wouldn't benefit most adults. Yeah, there's a huge demand for adults, maybe even a much bigger market. You know, I was surprised because I would have thought the adult market would be better and more served through on, you know, now with the online courses, the online resources, and now AI bots and teachers. But what I realized is you can ask, how do I invest in stocks? You know, what's the PE ratio? But to put together the case history that teaches the lessons best or the most important lessons, the wisdom part, it's harder. You have to almost have somebody know 
you know, why you don't buy momentum stocks or why momentum stocks, yeah, that you're not going to get the trading experience, the reality. Um, I was trying to say that I would have thought the adults would be better served with the online stuff and resources. I use that for other things, but not the case as much as I would have thought. You know, people still live in a world of ignorance and darkness when it comes to investing and make unbelievably stupid decisions for no reason that they lack a little bit of basic knowledge about it. I can't tell you how many friends with brokerage accounts and, you know, they show them to me in the last 10 years, they're portfolio turnover 17 times a year and they've been made you know, one and a half percent a year and they don't even know are you benchmarking well how the s you know it's so sad and and so many adults are taking advantage in the same way kids don't get taken advantage of because they don't have brokerage accounts they're not taking advantage of the opportunities they have as young people but as you get older you get taken advantage of and you don't know what to expect and you think oh i've been one two percent a year and you know you realize yeah you're up 10% on five years where you could have doubled your money in the S&P, right? It's crazy what happens. It's crazy decisions people make because of lack of knowledge. Sorry, I hope I'm not rambling too much. No, that's fantastic. It's really, it's fantastic information. What I was, no, no, no. What I was going to, I was just going to run on from that thought. You're referring to how much information there is online now and that there is so much education there. But I think there's an overload because of that. And mixed in with that, you've got all the, the hucksters out there trying to sell their trading system or their margin loans or their leveraged um, ways of making money overnight. And it's really hard to pick out for someone, a, a regular civilian, to pick out what's really good value information. Here's the shocking part. We do this in class where I show them pictures of hucksters, fraudsters, you know, FinTwit, TikTok. You know, here are schemes of this stuff. And like to me or to you or me, you'd be like, oh my God, what a clown. This will never work. But to these guys, people, adults and kids, they don't, to them, it looks like a Morgan Stanley advertisement or, you know, Goldman Sachs private wealth internal document. They, they can't tell, oh, APR, what is that? They don't know. And more often than not, you know, people will put $10,000 into these things and spend no time where if they were buying a car or planning a vacation, they'd spend six months researching hotels, this, that. They're so intimidated, they make these decisions. They'll part money, 10 grand on a crypto or NFT, blink of an eye, because a friend told them to. But it'll take them six months to pick which hotel and airlines to fly on a trip to Hawaii, right? It's a weird psychological thing, which I don't fully understand, but it's hard not to be you know, bowled over by it when you experience it. So if uh, listeners are interested in finding out more, how can they do so? Um, you can go to our website at learnwallstreet.org. And it has a brief summary of the program and contact information. And people want to talk about the program or parts of the curriculum. Um, we are very transparent. One of the things I've been frustrated with after school programs in New York is the inability to actually see what the curriculum is. So as I've shared with you, we, we're happy to talk about the curriculum and discuss individual class plans. Feel free to contact us. Raji Kabaz, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure meeting you. Phil, thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.